last night, as you know, was New Year's Eve. We had a we had a wonderful rock and New Year's Eve at Spirit Rock. <laughs> kind of quiet, actually, but <laughs> but we do we did we we stayed up till midnight. We sat and walked, and then we went down. There's the balloons in the dining hall and popcorn in silence at 9.15. And this is for the adventurous, the ones who stayed up, right? And then, and then we sat and walked and we had a little ritual and there was a ringing of the bell at, for 108 times to bring in the new year. And it's always fun because I've done this retreat, I, I do it every other year. And Gil Fransdale, who's um, the, um, one of the main teachers on this retreat every year, he always gives a little talk at about 11.45 about how there's no such thing as a new year, and uh, which you all know, of course, right? It's a convention, it's an idea, etc. And so we don't do anything. <laughs> and, and it really it works so well. It really... Anyhow, so I actually gave the Dharma talk earlier in the evening, and um, at thinking about it, what I wanted to talk about for the new year, it seemed appropriate to give the same talk tonight, because the new year has an interesting, even though it, there's no such thing as a new year, when we imbue a convention with a belief or with meaning, it provides something. And so a new year, one of the things the new year provides is a, a point of perspective. It allows us to say, oh, a year is over, a new year is beginning, and so from that point, we have a different context than our usual everyday context. And it gives context to the whole last year. It, asks, it, it um, invites us to look and see, well, what... What happened last year? What was last year for us in, in our life? And what, what's possible for next year? What's the possibility? And it can be really helpful to begin to see things in a greater context than we usually do. And so what I'd like to begin to talk about tonight begins with that. that I'd like to put some a greater context into what we're doing here, or offer a greater context to what, it, to what we're doing here when we come and we sit and we come together to meditate. <clears throat> that meditation and the practice of awakening, and awakening, awakening itself is within a greater context than sometimes we pay attention to. And when I first came to practice, I really didn't, I, was, I wasn't interested in any greater context. I was interested in meditation, enlightenment, freedom, liberation, whatever you want to call it. But I was really interested in meditation as the way to get there. And it took me a few years before I began to appreciate the greater context in which we find meditation, meditation practice, meditation retreats, and the whole... Um, in the whole trajectory of awakening. <clears throat> and so the context that I would like to speak to tonight 
that we are part of, that we're sitting in already, whether we know it or not, is called the Eightfold, is the uh, Eightfold Noble Path, or the Noble Eightfold Path, more accurately. And the Buddha taught the path from the beginning of his awakening till his death. So on the night of his awakening, he awakens and one of the core, the central pieces in his awakening is what's called the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. The Four Noble Truths are simply put that there is suffering, there's a cause to suffering, there's freedom from suffering, and then there's a path that leads to freedom. And so after he awakens and he kind of hangs out for a few weeks trying to decide whether he's going to teach or not, and then he comes to the decision to teach, and he goes gives his first talk. His first talk is about the Four Noble Truths. And so, of course, included in that is the path that leads to freedom. And I'll say a little more about the Four Truths later, but what I want to mostly focus on is the last truth, that there is a path, that there is a way. And he teaches it at the beginning. He teaches it all throughout the Buddhist scriptures, all throughout what's called the Pali Canon, the canon that's been handed down now for some 2,000 years um, after it was first written down 500 years approximately, maybe it was 300, 500 years after the Buddha's death and is the basis for the oldest existent teachings of the Buddha. And in that canon, you find innumerable references to him teaching the path or pieces of the path, the different limbs of the path. And one of the uh, richest teachings in, that, in, those, uh, in the canon, in the Pali canon, the Buddhist canon, is the teaching on the Buddha's death. There's a, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the, the Sutta of the Great Passing of the Buddha, the Death of the Buddha. And it's a beautiful teaching, and it's mostly a teaching about how to live life. It uses the reality of death, the certainty of death, and the actual story of the Buddha's dying as a way to teach us about how to live life. And the Buddha at some point knows that he's going to die and he goes all over the Indian subcontinent where he had lived and taught for 45 years going to the different places his followers were practicing and he teaches he's really doing his you know his farewell tour like you know like the Rolling Stones or something they're not quite there maybe in 10 years the Stones will do this farewell tour and you know They'll make their final statement and you want to be there to hear whatever they're... I think you do, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't heard them live in 30 years, so... But, um, but it's true, if the Buddha was coming, giving his farewell talk, I'd want to be there. I'd, I'd actually want to really listen to what, what would he say after, living, after awakening and living a life of awakening, knowing he's going to die. That would definitely interest me. 
And so it interests me to even read what it says in the teachings about what does he teach. And it's summed up in this statement that's used over and over. He goes from place to place and he teaches um, this is virtue, this is concentration, this is wisdom. This is virtue, this is concentration, this is wisdom. And this is uh, these three um, baskets of virtue, of concentration, of wisdom, are the three baskets, what are called the three baskets of the Eightfold Noble Path. They're the three areas that he highlighted in the eight limbs of the uh, path. And the, the first basket, virtue, is also, it's called sila in Pali. It's known as ethical conduct, morality, um, I like the word virtue best. I think it really more accurately describes the power of the ethical conduct that he's pointing at. Remember, virtue has the same root as virility. It implies a certain kind of power based on um, uh, an ethical conduct, or I think of there's another word, a kind of impeccability, the, the impeccability of a warrior. <clears throat> which the Buddha was, of course. He came from the warrior caste in, in India. And then, so there's the basket of virtue, the basket of a concentration or samadhi. It's the meditative basket. It's the basket we're sitting in right here. This is literally the limb of the um, Eightfold Path that we would call meditation or mindfulness or concentration. And then the third basket of the path is the basket of panya, or awakening, or understanding, or right understanding, or awakening. Wisdom. It's a wisdom basket. It's when we really get the way things are. And the Buddha described his discovery of the path in this way. He says, just as if one traveling through the forest should see an ancient path traversed by those of former days, and going along it one should see an ancient city having gardens, groves, pools, and that city came to be restored so, so, that, I, so that it became prosperous and flourishing. Even so, I have seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of former times, that is, the noble Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, this is the Panya or wisdom basket, right, um, right action, right speech, right livelihood, this is the virtue or ethical conduct basket of the path, and then right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, this is the samadhi, or the contemplative basket of the path. And he says, along that ancient path I have gone, and going along it, I have come to fully comprehend the way going to the ceasing of aging and death. Along that ancient path I have gone, and going along it, I have come to fully comprehend that way going to the ceasing of aging and death.
This is the Buddha's metaphor for freedom, that he's not bound by the conditions of human life. And so I, I, I feel like it's appropriate to begin to see the context in which we're practicing, the greater vision of, what, of which meditation is really a part of. And actually, even, even awakening is a part of this path. It's both the goal of the path, but it's also the path is an expression of awakening itself. So let's, let's just look at the idea of the path for a few moments. It's a very common idea in spirituality, in spiritual traditions. The Tao, the Tao is also often known as the way. And Buddhism is sometimes called the great way. And so way and path are kind of interchangeable. Buddhism's called the great way. Taoism the way. In Christianity, Jesus said, I am the way. And so there's, there's this image that's given of a way or a path that begins to take us from the vicissitudes of human life to freedom that describes uh, something that's been outlined, something that we can follow, something that something points us in a direction that's already been understood. And one of the beautiful things about, I feel, about the image of a path or a way in this sense is that it connects us to human, the human lineage, the lineage of human beings who have questioned and cared and looked and sought for freedom, for understanding, for awakening, for liberation, for wholeness, for healing, whatever words you might use that bring you to practice. That we start to tap into a lineage that's existed, I believe, as long as human beings have been alive. And the path is, is, a, is a very vivid image because it points to a clearing that's been created by others. Somebody cleared the path. In the biography of the Buddha by Karen Armstrong, she describes the Buddha's awakening as characterized by this rediscovery. Remember the Buddha in the first piece I read, he said, he said, um, you know, having gone along, seen an ancient path traversed by those of former days, and that he recognized this. It wasn't, it wasn't new, it was ancient. And she says that his awakening was characterized by this rediscovery. That it was not his invention. He didn't invent the path. He didn't get enlightened and then say, well, this would be good for people to do, or this would be interesting, or, well, why don't we look at this for a while? 
he, he actually um, explored, um, walked this way, and then recognized what he had been walking on. And then he offered a path. <clears throat> so the path was not his invention. It was taught by previous Buddhas, she said, and the knowledge had faded over the eons. And then quoting Karen Armstrong, she says, Gotama, Gotama Buddha, Gotama Siddhartha, his name before he was enlightened. Gotama insisted that this insight was simply a statement of things as they really are. The path was written into the very structure of existence. It was therefore the Dharma, the truth, par excellence, because it elucidated the fundamental principles that govern the life of the cosmos. That the path is inherent in human life itself. And as I said a few moments ago, in some way we we can begin to tune into the lineage of men and women who have been walking this path for thousands of years. And we can appreciate it, we can acknowledge the um, gift, the generosity, the goodness of those people. Sometimes very helpful to really get that it's people just like you who've walked this path. And that even the Buddha was a person just like us. That these weren't mythological beings. And for the and you can just look back even a generation, two, three, four in Thailand, people that we've known who were just people. People seeking freedom, people seeking happiness, people seeking to understand human life. And we can really appreciate, or hopefully, hopefully we can actually feel the water of that stream, of that lineage, carry us. That we can let it touch us and carry us in some sense. But even, even though we appreciate the power, the grace of those who've come before, we still have to walk the path ourselves. Each person has to walk the path themselves. Nobody can do it for us, not even the Buddha. The Buddha would often say that to people. Not even the Buddha could do it. That one, as he put it, one must make a light of oneself or make a lamp of oneself. That the illumination needs to come from within, not, not simply from without. So we don't create the path, but we do have to traverse the path. Now, again, I like this metaphor a lot, but like any metaphor, it also has some limitations. And one of the limitations is it's a little linear, right, path. It goes from here to there. And, you know, that works somewhat, but it may not work totally. And so I want to give you another metaphor. It's, it's more of a visual metaphor.
This is a Dharma wheel. And the Dharma wheel is also a metaphor for the path. And if you can see, if I'm holding this high enough, you can see the Dharma wheel. It's empty at the center and the spokes go out in every direction. And I think it's maybe a more helpful image than the linearness of just a straight path. Partly it's very helpful because it immediately reveals the center of the path, which is empty. It's empty at the center of the wheel. And it begins to point to the freedom that the Buddha spoke about, the unsolidity of all of reality, that there is nothing actually concrete in reality, that our bodies and our hearts and our minds are all in flux, always in flux, always in change. That the essence of what we are is fluid or empty is sometimes spoken of. But either way, the sim maybe the simplest way to think about it is, is that, that we can't reify or concretize or solidify reality. And so reality is empty, not because it's not here, but because it's not solid. And then from that emptiness, the Dharma manifests in every direction of our life. So we begin to understand the truth of impermanence, the truth of the non-thingness of reality, then the Dharma can begin to spread in every direction. And generally the Dharma wheel has eight spokes. If you're looking carefully, this Dharma wheel has 12 spokes. The, the consensus is that it's because the Four Noble Truths, which again I'll say a little more about, have three parts to each truth. And so these are the 12 manifestations of the Four Noble Truths. One of the quotes that I love to quote is from Dogen, who says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or to let go of the self. To let go of the self or to forget the self is to awaken with all things. And that's a, I, I love that teaching of Buddhism because it means we don't have to change anything. We don't have to get rid of anything. We don't have to deny anything. What we want to study is what's right here and see what the truth of what is right here. What is the truth of what's here? What is the truth of our bodies and our hearts and our minds? And I mention it because another way we can think about the path is not 
directionality at all. Like there's no direction. The only path is to study ourself, is to study what's here. And this, the way I understand this is really the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. That we want to study suffering. And the truths are interactive truths. The Four Truths are not prescriptions or commandments or um, they're not formulations for you to believe. They're invitations to engage. So the engagement of the first truth, that there is suffering, is to begin to understand it. Begin to understand suffering. And the engagement of the second truth, that there's a cause to suffering, is to begin to release the causes. And the engagement with the third truth, that there is freedom from suffering, is to begin to realize freedom. To begin to make that real, to realize freedom. And the engagement of the, that was the third truth, the engagement of the fourth truth, which is there, a, there is a path that leads to freedom, is to cultivate that path or that way that leads to freedom. So that the four truths become a kind of interactive dialectic. They're not static, and you don't just walk them one time. But they're to be examined and realized and made real and cultivated and lived over and over and over again right here. This is the path then. And we're called to study ourselves, to study human life in this form that we find ourselves in. This is from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who says, the desire for freedom, liberation, enlightenment, self-realization, inner development, whatever it is you call it, is not a response to a call from outside of you. The search is an intimately personal interest in your situation. It shows itself as a questioning of the disharmony, or we would say dukkha in a more Buddhist term, the suffering that you live in. The stirring must come from you, from your depths. And you can use a system to help but ultimately it is your life, your quest. The path is you, your heart and mind. And the quest does not bring about an improvement or a perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and a wisdom. This is really the movement of the Eightfold Noble Path giving us the tools, the way, the guidelines, the orientation to study what human life is and what it means to awake as a human being. This is Ajahn Chah saying it in another voice. He says, traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding and right action and right concentration and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us, 
two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. All the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. The whole Dharma is sitting in your seat. The whole Dharma is sitting with you. Not even with you, that's too, that's too far away. It is you. The whole Dharma is you. And that's why we study the self. That's why we study what's here. Ryokan put it even more poetically. Ryokan's Zen monk, poet. He said, the Buddha is your mind. The Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? It's a very subtle Zen joke in there. Okay. So if we can just, if, if, that's, if we're comfortable with the idea there's no path but what sits right here, then I think we can really get a sense of what the path is. We can talk about the path. And there's one more important piece that I think we can uh, highlight. What's, what's the one piece that unifies the path? Anybody? Right. Right. Right understanding, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Right. It's a very important word when we talk about the path. It's especially important because we live in an extremely moralistic time. And we've grown up with a lot of moralistic associations with the word right. We almost can't hear the word right without thinking right or wrong. And so 
these days you may hear a lot of different translations of the word sama that is generally has been translated as right. Sometimes people will translate it as wise, wise intention or wise action. Sometimes people translate it as true or authentic, true action, authentic action, authentic speech, authentic mindfulness. Sometimes For myself, I actually like the word right. I find it a very... I grew up on it in the Dharma, so I feel very comfortable with it. But I also think it's it's a worthy word for what we're speaking to. Because it's not pointing to right so much as right as opposed to wrong, but like when you really get something that you're trying to figure out, you, you get it right. Or when you figure out how to work something, you finally get it right. Or if you get the right tool for the right job, it like works really well. You may be able to do it with another tool, but the right tool is is really well. It really works well. And so we're talking about right in terms of what's of value. And I think that's a better, a really good way to think about it. What's a value? What's valuable for our purposes, given that we want to cultivate right understanding and intention and action and speech? What, what's, what's most valuable to say in a situation? What's, most val- what's the most valuable way to practice mindfulness or concentration? Or what's the effort that is really valuable to move our meditation deeper. What kind of effort is really valuable to us, is worthy? And it also points to something about it in that sense of hearing right in terms of its valuableness. It's sometimes, this is not really so accurate maybe, but I just keep hearing a kind of clarity and a pristine, a precision to the word right at a certain point really honing into what's the truth of the situation what what's the true what what's the the true what's the intention that really exp- expresses the deepest truth and therefore is most valuable and then even more simply maybe this is a better way to say it this is from Thich Han. he says Right and wrong are neither moral judgments nor arbitrary standards opposed from outside. Through our own awareness, through our own mindfulness, we discover what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. And so a very simple and I believe helpful way to think of right is what's beneficial, what's speech that's beneficial for self and others. What's the most beneficial concentration? What's the understanding that's beneficial that leads to awakening? Now, I'm also going to make my case a little more about the word right, if you don't mind. And it's from the dictionary. 
One of the definitions of right literally means of a way or a course. So right being a path in that sense, of a way or a course. Direct going straight towards its destination. And then it said this, it said appropriate, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. Appropriate, exactly answering to what is needed or suitable. And in some ways this is more like the right tool, what's the appropriate tool. But it also points to a teaching in the Zen tradition. And the teaching in the Zen tradition is the student comes to the teacher and says, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And the teacher, instead of saying liberation or enlightenment or freedom, he says an appropriate response. An appropriate response. And this is the flavor of right that we're talking about and that the dictionary says. That when we're here, when we learn how to be here, when we learn how to be mindful and awake, in a true way, in a real way, we can begin to respond to reality, whatever reality brings to us. That we have our resources, we have our intelligence and our creativity and our love and our intuition, what's sometimes called the treasure house in Buddhism. That we can respond fully by being present in a moment. Because if we're not present, we're gonna, we lose so much of our riches. We lose so much of what's possible for us to bring to any situation. And I like to tell a story about this. That's a kind of, uh, it's a little bit of an extreme example, but you'll hear. And actually many of you have heard it, but some of you haven't. So we have a friend, Ajahn Jumnian. Ajahn Jumnian is a Thai forest monk. He's been practicing 60 years now. And Ajahn Jumnian is really a cool guy. You can go, he comes once a year to Spirit Rock. If you haven't met Ajahn Jumnian, just go. He's fun. And not all the monks and nuns are not necessarily fun. You know, it's, it's a different way to live, right? And it's Often it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a renunciate path, right? Being a monastic and it's a little, um, it has a tradition of being very, um, not having a lot of personality, let's say. But Ajahn Junian is free of that. And he's just a fun guy and he comes in saying, when he comes in the meditation hall, he'll come in. He doesn't know a lot of English, but he says, empty, empty, happy, happy. And he's laughing and he makes jokes. He does these weird things with his fingers and his eyes. And, you know, he's like, he's, a little, he's kind of a clown a little bit, Ajahn Jimnian. And he, he, fills, he takes the holy water and instead of blessing people with a feather or a thing, he, um, he puts it in squirt gun and he'll squirt you with the holy water. And, um, and he, I have to tell you this part. He, he, um, when he first came, he looked really big. And then he showed us, he opened his outer robe and he had all these things he was wearing that people had given him. And people give a monk, he's a very revered monk in, in Thailand. I mean, very classy guy in the monk scene. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm saying it. 
crudely, I shouldn't speak quite like that. I apologize. But, but he is. He's a revered elder monk in the Thai. And in Thailand, that's a big deal. You know, like the king reveres Ajahn Jumnian. Um, and so people give him a lot of things. And as part of his practice of acknowledging people's generosity, he decided at a certain point to wear everything that was given. And so he had an inner robe made with all these pockets and all these things, all these ties, so he would tie on these amulets that people gave him or photos they gave him or rocks they gave him or dead lizards they gave him or medicine they gave him or money they gave him. I mean, all this stuff. And he, and at some point he was wearing like, you know, 40 or 50 pounds of stuff. <laughs> Literally, this is true. And he was, you know, and he was fine. He said, you know, he would take it off when he slept, but otherwise he wore it all the time. And, you know, it's a little bit of an ascetic kind of practice, which is in the monastic tradition. You can do some ascetic practice. And he, he enjoys himself. So he said, he told us, he said, he said, oh, it's kind of fun to wear it. He says it drives him crazy when he goes through the airport, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and then every once in a while he'll give away something. And, of course, he keeps getting more stuff. And I think he finally took it off when he, be he turned 65. I, I think he decided that was enough. He wanted to be a little lighter. And uh, anyhow, so Ajahn Jumni in one year told us his story that I think represents a certain kind of appropriate response. He had a forest monastery in the 60s, same he still has the same monastery, in a rubber tree forest in Thailand that was in the middle of the fighting between the Thai government and the leftist guerrillas. And neither side liked Ajahn Jumnian because Ajahn Jumnian was for peace. And neither side, either both sides wanted to kill the other, and he didn't want anybody to kill anybody. So nobody liked him. And he was okay with that. And then one day he got a message, he got information that the rebel commander and his group, some portion of his group, were coming, going to come to the monastery that night to kill Ajahn Jumnian. And Ajahn Jumnian said, he thought about it, and he thought, oh, it's not a problem, he could die. And he, he's quite serious about that. He said he could die. That would not be a problem. He said, but he thought about it for a while, and he thought it wouldn't be so good. It would be bad karma for the rebel commander if, if he let the rebel commander kill him. So he decided, okay, he would leave the monastery. So he thought about, well, where would be a good place to go? And he figured he'd go to the rebel commander's house. <laughs> Right? So he slipped out of the monastery and he went at night to the rebel commander's village and got there late at night and knocked on the door of the rebel commander's house. And the rebel commander's wife opened the door and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and Hajin Jimnian said, I've come to teach you the Dharma. And the Thai people are very polite, and she said, okay, come in. And he said, please invite some people from the village because I'm going to teach. And people came, and he spent the evening and the night at that, that house. In the meantime, the rebel commander's at the monastery looking for Ajahn Jumnian and can't find him. 
And so in the morning, Ajahn Jimnian, who only sleeps two hours a night, got up and um, uh, said goodbye to the um, family, of course, who he totally charmed, right? You know, he's, he's a very charming guy. Besides being a powerful presence when he teaches the Dharma, and a very powerful presence. Um, and so he went back to the monastery, not, he had something, I don't know if he'd put on some kind of camouflage or something, but he went back and he found the rebel commander now and tapped him on the shoulder. And the commander turns around and said, what are you, where have you been? And he said, I've been at your house. And he said, what, 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 are you, what were you doing there? He said, I was teaching the Dharma, and now your family is my family. And then he said, and he paused a second, and then he said, but don't worry, your wife is still your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he said the rebel commander laughed, and he said he knew he had them then. <laughs> and they became friends, and that was, that was the end of the story. So how's that for a living dharma, a living, living reality of appropriate response? Totally outside the box, totally outside any box. And Ajahn Jumnia is outside the box, definitely. He's even outside the monastic box, it's really true. So right as appropriate, answering exactly to what's needed. Another way the dictionary defines right is to recover one's balance or equilibrium. And this is an important principle in all of Dharma practice. The Buddha Dharma is called the middle way. And so part of our practice is to find our balance in life. And one of the beauties of this idea of, of writing ourselves is like a sailboat. If you've ever sailed, you don't just say stay stiff and straight up. You actually always go over and then write, and go over and then write again. And that's how you move through life, through, through the sea. And that's actually more accurate to how we move through life, is by finding our balance, recalibrating over and over again as we begin to live life in a very real way. And what I, what I like about this image is it allows for our mistakes. It means the mistakes aren't wrong. They're, they give us the information to write again and then to come back to center. And they show us how to move forward in the trajectory of awakening. And then the last one, which really sums it up, this is from the Oxford English Dictionary. It said, right means to bring into accordance with truth to bring into accordance with truth, to bring our speech in accordance with truth, our intention or our aspiration in, in accordance with truth, to bring our action in accordance with the truth or our understanding in accordance with the truth. Bhikkhu Bodhi said, the path brings the teachings to life it translates the Dharma from a collection of abstract formulas into a continually unfolding disclosure of truth. A living Dharma, a continually unfolding disclosure of truth.
and it epitomizes the aliveness of the path, of the context that we're in. <clears throat> and so we begin to bring our understanding, our uh, integrity, and our practice in alignment with the truth. And our commitment is to the path is really a commitment to truth. To the Dharma. The Dharma is often translated as truth. This is from Ken Welber. He says, spiritual practice is not something we do for 20 minutes a day or for two hours a day. It's not something we do once a day in the morning or once a week on Sunday nights. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their realization. It is a prior commitment to truth. Lived, breathed, intuited, practiced 24 hours a day. And this orientation is important because so much of our orientation is towards comfort and safety and to what's familiar. And at some point, if we really want freedom, if we really want to awaken, our orientation has to be beyond comfort, beyond safety, beyond the habitual, beyond the familiar. And, you know, I like to say, get as much comfort and security as you can. You know, that's fine. But you'll see, when you see that it doesn't actually bring you happiness, it brings you comfort and security, and that's okay. Then, it, then it's important to see that there's something else to commit to, something greater, something more profound. So that we're not just in reaction to what's difficult and looking for comfort and security. Ajahn Chah said, to run from suffering is to run towards it. And at some point we have to turn towards reality to find our freedom. <clears throat> and there's a couple benefits here when we begin to see this, when we begin to orient in this way. One is that if we can learn to orient towards what's true, then we can begin to trust life, even if we don't like what's happening. You don't have to like it, but if it's true, we have to come to terms with it. And if we can begin to trust it, we can begin to see that the unfoldment of life is the unfoldment of the Dharma, that it's offered for us to awaken every moment of life, not just the moments we like, not just the moments that are comfortable or secure or that make us feel good, but actually many of the moments that are very difficult will actually bring illumination. It's one of the paradoxes that I see in meditative practice that the difficulties people have sometimes, they think they're doing it wrong. 
when the difficulties are part of the terrain we need to cross in order to find awakening. And the second is a second benefit, which is that we begin to orient to something greater than ourselves. We orient towards the, towards the truth. We begin to orient towards something greater than the small sense of self. Something more profound, something more essential. This is from Ashvagosha. Some hundreds of years ago, he wrote The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness, become a monastic, or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the world, the Dharma of the Buddha asks every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to open one's heart and to lead a life of awakening. And then whatever they do, whether you work in the world of business or teaching, the world of education, in the service, if you work in the world of computers, whatever one does, if one works in the government, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and if they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. To live a life not of self, but a life of truth. So this is the teaching of the way in Buddhism. The path. The path to freedom. To liberation the path that leads to the present moment, to now, because this is where the path is found. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.